Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of What Do You Call It podcast. I'm your host GB. Today's guest is a passionate wrestling fan and the author of the upcoming book, Dynamite and Davy: The Explosive Lives of the British Bulldogs. Please give it up for Stephen Bell. How you doing today, mate? You all right? I'm great, George. Thanks for having me, man. Not a problem at all, mate. Uh, I'm glad that you got in touch and communicated. Uh, we was actually supposed to do this originally a bit earlier, but know things come up uh so but thank you for um coming on we're going to talk about your book your upcoming book you being an author and just how you became a wrestling fan so before we do discuss the upcoming book how long have you actually been a wrestling fan well it's um it's been a bit of a on and off thing really throughout my life i was um sort of mid-30s so um if you Trace that back, you know, it's not hard to figure out that our sort of prime childhood years when Vince McMahon sort of targeted that that era, especially here in the UK, largely through Davey, using Davey as the um, sort of face of uh, of his British onslaught and takeover of, um, of the British wrestling business, if you like, after he'd conquered the US. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I grew up. Me and my friends and my brother, knowing nothing but, you know, Hulk Hogan and Davey and Brett and, you know, th- that sort of era, Ultimate mm. Warrior. The golden, uh, the golden era. Like. Yeah, yeah, the, go- the, the golden era, the, uh, the time when it really sort of piped it into that, that generation, if you like. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely, Hook, Line and Sinker, loved it, loved every single second of it. Um, and then, as I think happened, the, um, the WWF in particular went through a tough period as WCW sort of took over a little yeah. bit in the mid-90s and that coincided with um, my generation sort of growing out of wrestling a little bit, you know, thinking that we were a little bit too smart for it then and, you know, uh, finding other things. I got really, still I'm really big on my football and my boxing, but I got into that sort of stuff then and then obviously a few years later, uh, the Attitude Era came along and I were a teenage boy then and what else does a teenage boy want other than you know, Stone Cold and The Rock and Trish Stratus. So, <laughs> you know, so it sort of really piqued my fandom. Then me and my brother got back into it in a big way, I remember. And um, one of his friends had never actually made the mistake of thinking he was too cool for wrestling in that midnight period. And mm-hmm. uh, he'd, he'd actually carried on his fandom the whole way through so much. So he'd, uh, he'd curated a, a big collection of all the old VHSs, all the pay-per-views going all the way back to WrestleMania 1. So when uh, when myself and my brother got back into wrestling in a big way, we sort of wanted to catch up on everything that we'd missed and more. We wanted to go all the way back. So uh, we were bringing, sort of, as the carrier bags back, I remember, of all his VHSs uh, at a time. Ten ah, Silver Vision, man. And working his way through it, I remember every night when we got off from school, we'd work through a couple of pay-per-views. Yeah. And, um, and that's when, actually, I sort of tied, um, started to tie in uh, Dynamite into what I knew about Davey. And um, obviously, by then, I was sort of 15, 16-year-old, a bit more socially aware, geographically aware. I'd become aware that Davey Boy was actually from just up the road from me, uh, less than, far less than an hour's drive. Uh, from a similar sort of small mining town as what I'm from. So then when uh, when I discovered the British Bulldogs, rather than just the British Bulldog singular, as I'd only known sort of in my childhood, mm-hmm. um, I sort of asked to, started asking myself a few questions, did a bit of research into who exactly Tom Billet and what, and um, yeah, that sort of coincided with Mick Foley's book coming out, Mick Foley, uh, you know, Dynamite's on 
on Mick Foley's Mount Rushmore and uh, it puts him over in his book mm. in a big way as being sort of probably the best in the world in the mid 80s uh, when when he first came across him and and so that sort of piqued me interest even more started doing a little bit of research then I was nowhere close to being an author back then it was just really sort of a passion of mine to sort of dig into these stories and and so yeah that, that's like 20 years ago now and then slowly as um as, as time went on, me and my brother stayed big, big wrestling fans. It was like something that we use not just as interest for ourselves individually, but something that we really had in common. The main thing that we really had in common, it, it forged us to be closer in as later years after we'd not been that close as kids, really. So, yeah, it was something that we we had and still do have uh, in common in a big way. Uh, and, yeah, so then it went into 2000s. Davey, unfortunately, passed away. And, you know, yeah. it's like one of them, a bit like the mention with, you know, uh, I think the two main ones that spring to mind is Princess Diana or Freddie Mercury, where you remember where you were when you were the, the news. And I do remember mm. exactly where I was when I heard that David Boyd died. And it really... You're so young, I suppose. Only, what, 39? Yeah. 39, yeah, yeah. Isn't it? Um, yeah, it shook me up quite a lot, really, because... Um, I'd only ever sort of seen him as this ultra fit superhero type figure. So then that forced me to sort of do a little bit more research into, you know, why. And then sort of I'd, I became aware of all the other wrestler deaths that were happening around the same time with similar yeah. issues and things like that. So, yeah, I, I just sort of accidentally stumbled across this this minefield of a story that, well, that I felt had originated from just round corner from me yeah it, it was happening on the global scale right in front of me it involved so much of my peak fandom my wrestling fandom going back to when i was a child and also at the time then and then yes yeah, so sort of 15 to 20 years later when i became a sports author it was mm -hmm. sort of there in back of my mind all the time that that i knew that there was a story in there and in the meantime brett Hart had bought brought his book out which is actually one of my sort of top five favorite it's books my favorite time. wrestling book by the way yeah it's uh, it's, favorite i've probably read it like two or three times i actually met him when he just released it at a book sign even though it's four hours late um but the <laughs> book is <laughs> so good except for the last two pages i won't spoil it if anyone's not read it but when you read if you've read it you know what i mean yeah yeah that that is true but it's it, that's just so brett isn't it you know yeah it, just he couldn't help it, himself <laughs> you could tell he blowed his heart and soul into the whole thing and um, left left absolutely nothing out there. Like, you know, it's five or six hundred pages long, mm -hmm. um, where where most of these wrestling memoirs... Are, Two, you know, three hundred pages. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But it took me less time to read Brett's than it did one of the two or three hundred page ones because I was just so absorbed into it every single... I found myself... You know, even while I was just putting kettle on on the morning to make myself become <laughs> thing before I went to work, I'd, yeah. I'd, ram, I'd, ram, I'd ram two or three pages on because, yeah, literally, you know, the old saying of you can't put a book down, I yep. actually found I couldn't put that book down. And that put so much sort of meat on the bones of the yeah. uh, Dynamite and Davies story for me um, that, uh, yeah, I found myself doing more of my own research and everything like that point. And again, that's still just sort of leading up to me being in a position where, I found myself a few years later being uh, a successful and published author, sports author, um, and nobody had sort of done it yet. And I just thought, right, yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's time somebody did it. And unbelievably, it's me. I am looking forward to 
pre-ordering it and when it comes out but there's a lot to talk about in your journey and some things that I want to sort of go back on um, as you mentioned before uh, wrestling not being your only sport that you're actually into football and boxing I've got to ask because if you have listened to my previous episodes if I discover someone's a football fan I've just got to know what team do you support I'm a United fan um, yeah that war uh, born out of a little bit like, um, obviously, you can tell I've got a northern northern voice, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, in that early 90s period, at the same time that I was so obsessed with WWF and what they were all bringing to the, bringing to the table, I mm-hmm. got a little bit obsessed with what Alex Ferguson and Eric Cantona and Ryan Giggs and Kamchelskis and all of them were bringing yep. to the table. So, yeah, I quickly aligned myself uh, there. It weren't, it weren't difficult, a difficult decision to make. You know, there were, there were no, major, um, no major football club within 10 or 15 mile of me, so there were no sort of immediate of, uh, obvious allegiances. And when... There were sort of the Harlem Globetrotters at the time. It was um, a pretty easy decision to make. Bonafide, bonafide glory sport, I'm afraid. Nah, at least you're honest about it. I mean, have you at least been to Old Trafford? Oh, God, yeah, many times, many times, yeah. You're fine then, because I know there's so many United fans I know in the South that have never even stepped foot in Manchester, yet alone Old Trafford. So uh, not a problem at all. I completely understand. I'm an Arsenal fan, but I've always got a soft spot for United more. United's past achievements and the rivalry that was between Arsenal and Man United, Arsene Wenger and Alex Ferguson. Like we're never going to see those days again. We're playing well, each other. Well, on it's Thursday. funny you say that, George, because I, yep. I genuinely believe, and I've spoke about this quite a lot. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I write and go on podcasts for uh, these football times, and um, it's something that I've talked about quite passionate, passionately that. I don't think football will ever be the same again. And I think that that rivalry was kind of where football peaked. I know everybody sort of thinks that their era was the best, but I do. I think it's where we had we had this perfect combination of um, foreign talent coming in, the best foreign talent coming in from your own point of view. You've got Bert Camp and Henri and them. Yeah. But they weren't playing for themselves. They were playing for the team. They weren't playing yeah, for the that's wages. Exactly they, weren't, they weren't mercenaries like, like we have now. And, and um same at United, fantastic, fantastic foreign imports. So mm-hmm. uh, Alex Ferguson were bringing in to fill particular points in a, in his team and building his team around them. Uh, you like you like Cantona and Van Nistelrooy, Ronaldo eventually, and um, yeah, I I do think that that era. I do think that Roman Abramovich and then Mourinho coming in at Chelsea was the almost the beginning of the end of English football for me because it just. That is when it ultimately just turned into a, a a game of monopoly rather than rather than a game of football. I think. No, I, I understand that, and I, I do. I don't want to like piss with some of the listeners because I think some people won't agree, but that's because they're probably younger. But I do agree yeah. with you. Like football has peaked, and maybe because we're getting old, I don't know. If, like you said, everyone's got their favorite periods of time or whatever. But I honestly agree. Like, just tell me, have you seen the same passion that was seen in the Arsenal and Man United games from 15, 16 years ago? I'm sorry, not but even, that's not been replicated at all. Not, not, not even close. Not, no. not, not even close. You, you were glued. You were glued to every single second of them games because you never know what was going to happen next. What bit of magic, footballing magic might come up? What bit of... Um, 
you know, sliding tackle and then some retribution further mm-hmm. down. Like, you, you just never you know what know what I mean? Keo screaming in the face, like, Van Nistelrooy no, literally yeah, hitting, no, the, hitting feel, the crossbar. It just feels like they're going through motions a little mm-hmm. bit now. As, as and then Keo Vieira, like, and, and the things that they yeah. respect each other so now, like, I think you can watch them talking about, like, they're like, like the moments and the memories on YouTube. And it's just brilliant, man. It's just that passion. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and, and I think as a fan, you when you see players just going through motion, mm-hmm. same as with wrestling. I think it's same with wrestling. You know, um, when you see them just going through the motions, you yourself sort of switch off and you 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 gain that mentality off them. But it's not you're not quite fully engaged because you don't feel like they're fully engaged. If you know what I mean. But mm-hmm. but yeah, as you say, it's uh, each of their own and. I think there's probably is a little bit of nostalgia and roasting yeah. glass and all that going on. I, I have no doubt about that. Like I said, well, I was still a sort of teenager on my early twenties at the time yeah. when all that was going on. And um yeah, it, it just feels like looking back that that was the peak of my sort of football fandom and football obsession while uh while that period. I still love the game, but I, I do think you're right. Uh, there is one thing I want to know as well, just before I talk about how you became an author and a writer, because I know you've touched on that briefly. Um, I actually want to just quickly ask, it's probably going to be an obvious answer, but I've got to know, what is your favourite British Bulldog match? And and what is your favourite British Bulldogs match? Right, okay. Um, favourite British Bulldog match, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you... Two, just because I feel like you probably want a singles one where you're saying that as in a singles. Um, and that is, I would say, it's him versus Brett, but not SummerSlam 92. In uh, your house, December. In your house, December 95. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's Everybody remembers SummerSlam 92 for various reasons. It's a wonderful, magical, amazing match, but it's, a, it's even more of a wonderful, magical, amazing spectacle. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of a purely wrestling match, uh, in terms of you've got a baby face, you've got a heel, you've got uh, the 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 rollback. Eighty thousand the people there, Wembley Stadium. Wembley Stadium, yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely mm. right. That sort of, even though the match is amazing, dying a heart, crying. <laughs> yeah, the um, the spectacle almost gives you a, a an emotional investment. Yeah, uh, that that brings the match up above what it actually was, even though it was fantastic. The, the In Your House match that they had in December 95 uh, with the WF title on the line, um, they they deliberately, you can tell, and from doing all the research that I've done, you know, and exactly where they were in their friendship, uh, family life, uh, determination to to be at the top and stay at the top. Yeah. Uh, at, that, at that time, um, blading wore completely embargoed, so they, they sort of did it... Um, and they did the best job of ever covering up Blade. And if you're looking that, because they knew they had to, because it was so embargoed on such a high level, but they knew they wanted to roll back the years to when Blading was so... Brett was one of the best set, though. Like, we did it oh, against absolutely. He had, he, had the, he had the perfect hairdo, especially when it was mm. wet, you know, to, to sort of give himself that opportunity. Never but, got caught. Uh, no, and but because they had some fantastic matches back in Stampede when that's what they used to do and uh, their matches were like sort of barbaric and brilliant and they really knew how to time the uh, the blading job and they knew how to really get the crowd going to fever pitch and once I'd done all that research and then I watched that match I'd seen it two or three times before don't get me wrong but when you watch that match then knowing what they're doing why they're doing it um, 
and uh, yeah, it is. It's a work. It's an absolute work of art. Is that match? Um, D David Boy rarely as an eel throughout his career uh, does a great job. It gives him a better job than in '92 of sort of being the foil mm. for for Brett, who was the main man at the time. Uh, and but but what another thing that I love on David's part is both him and Brett agree that there's no need for him to submit to Shapshot. He never submitted to Shapshot like everybody else did. Um, and he walks off, despite being a heel, he walks off with the kind of a babyface reaction walking off with Diana. Um, you can tell that even though he's an heel at the time, the crowd still love him, everybody still loves him. Yeah. And yeah, it, it, it's a perfect uh, sort of little emotional story that they tell that day. The other one, the reason I'm going to put this one in is it, it's my favourite match that I think he was ever involved with, but obviously it's sort of a 10-man tag, so I didn't want to put it in as my favourite. Ah, uh, Canadian Stampede. Absolutely. That, that, oh, is, love that, is the, that is the ultimate air on the back of the head. Like uh, That is literally top five pay-per-views of all time for me, by the way. I think I it's got it. to be. I think, uh, yeah, at the very least. Um, and purely just because of that match, the reactions, the timing of it, the emotional involvement, it is the perfect piece of wrestling storytelling mm. for me culminates in probably culminates arguably you could say i mean as, as brilliant as the matches and what happens at the match and the ending and it's all it's all great that story between the art foundation and the heel turn and them coming together um the other all the infighting but they brought them together everybody wanted to see them together but they probably wanted to see them together as baby faces but that the fact that they were together as eels didn't matter in canada they no. just love the fact that they were together the fans were erupting um, literally oh, the root, it was shaking it, the camera it, yeah it is and it, as it's building up you get um pillman comes out first really really as kind of only he's capable of doing really yeah. brings the crowd up to fever pitch and then it's uh jim nidak gets the biggest reaction he probably ever has in his life because he uh, he didn't walk out as a solo star much to bring out him out on his own gets this amazing reaction and then it's uh and then it's Bulldog gets one of the best reactions of his life. He comes out and he's got uh, at least one. He's probably got two belts at the time. I'm trying to think back. He's got Diana. Oh, European that. tag, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and then Owen comes out with his slammers and stuff like that. You, you can just feel the electricity. And then when Brett, the guitar riffs from Brett's music, it, I think it is the, I mean, I've been to sporting events all over the world, the biggest sporting events all over the world. I weren't there, obviously. I weren't there. But um, yeah. as feeling it, through sort of osmosis through TV, I think that is possibly the most electrified sports crowd that there's quite possibly ever been. Like it is, it, the the place is shaking, literally shaking. And uh, yeah, um, that will always be sort of my favourite. I think my favourite match that involves Davey, I think that will always be that. That's a good answer, because I don't necessarily hear that all the time. It is mostly Wembley 92. It's the most popular answer you hear. Yeah, and, and I can see why because mm -hmm. of the, the it's the spectacle as well. The homecoming, yeah. uh, the the brilliant storytelling in that, with as you say, with Diana and the fact that they've got this infight in both baby faces of the intercontinental title. And yeah, it it is it is a perfect story. I just think yeah. it's, um, I think the fact that both baby faces obviously limits what they can do uh, in terms of you know, underhand tactics and all that, which everybody likes to see throughout a, a wrestling match. And, you know, it's, it's part of the story building. Um, so, yeah, I, I, ju I just think that as a singles match, uh, for me, the In Your House just slightly pips that one. Uh, yeah. And then the Canadian Stampede, just purely for the um, 
the unique, uh, like even even the emotional investment everybody had at SummerSlam '92. Um, you can probably pick out other singles matches with other people that have had that level of, you know, you sort of rock and Austin matches and that, that, these one-on-one -on -one matches that have had that level of anticipation and crowd um, support. But the the In Your House Canadian Stampede, I, I don't think there has ever been, for me, I've never seen a wrestling match with that level of just pure emotion and pure investment from a crowd and uh, that like the entire crowd as well it'd be hard to to find anything that tops it i mean if there is anyone listening to this right now and you haven't seen this pay-per-view if to forget the match itself just the entire pay-per-view go to the network find it on there canadian stampede in your house 1997 it is fantastic honestly it's one of the best pay-per-views you ever see uh, absolutely, it feels like an. Um, I think during the the during the show as well, uh, it's almost like a mini WrestleMania, like a Calgary WrestleMania, where the mm. show, um, all the old art family and obviously David Bowie being heavily involved in that. Uh, the show I'm doing this sort of uh, tour along with the uh, the Calgary Stampede that's actually on at the time, uh, the rodeo that the pay per view was named after. That's yeah. all at the time, and it shows uh, there's like. I'm picking a number out of thin air, but it's probably not far off being right from my research, as I remember. It, like 100,000 fans snaking around the city uh, just to get a glimpse of them, to get all uh, autographed 8 by awesome. 10 things like that. Uh, and they all got one to stay there until midnight or whatever to, to make sure everybody got away with the, the sign. Actual rock stars. And yeah, it's just, it turns into this sort of mini Canadian WrestleMania that culminates in this one match where mm. the rest of the certainly to the US fans, the Art Foundation eels, but it's this unique situation that they managed to create through this storytelling and performances of the guys individually, um, where you, you had this red-hot babyface heat behind them in Canada and this red-hot babyface, uh, red-hot eel hatred for them in the US, and it, it just culminates on that night, and it, it, it is amazing. Oh, it's fantastic, mate. I mean, one one last thing to mention before we move on uh, from the best match category and talk. Uh, there is one match I think doesn't get necessarily talked about enough. British Bulldog, Owen Hart, European title. Ha! Absolutely. I cover it heavily in the book. I only, I, I, with the other matches that we mentioned, I, I knew, even before I started my research for the book, I knew, I knew them matches all quite well. Or I, I remembered them. Um, I knew that David Boy had won the European title at a tournament in Europe and I knew that he'd um, beat Owen in the final. That were all I knew. I'd never actually seen the match. Um, so, obviously, I had a point of, point of going and viewing it when I got mm -hmm. to that point of the story. What an amazing little match it is. Like, you can Brilliant. see made this decision to have this ultra-technical um, match in Europe with a blend all these styles together. Um, probably wouldn't have been given the time or the space to do it on uh, American TV or an American pay for you. They've obviously just been given the freedom to go and do what they want. And they create this almost like perfect technical wrestling match where it also involves the storytelling of them as um, brothers-in-law and tag team champions together who were sort of a little bit of a jealousy uh, brother mentality going on. And yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. I would, as, we, as you've just said for that last one, I would implore anybody who wants seen it to go and watch mm -hmm. it. Highly recommend that match. So I want to talk about you being an author. I actually want to discover when did you know that you wanted to become an author and a writer? Well, it's been something that 
goes backing off a long way with me. I mean, I know I, like as a teenager, great at all English, got A stars in English at school. And but I went into engineering as my um, career. Never really give anything like journalism or anything a real chance to embed itself in me. And then as years went on, um, I sort of regretted that. I found myself being so obsessed with sports. Uh, mm -hmm. Still knew that I'd got this storytelling and writing ability. Um, that I kind of thought I'd miss my calling in life and sports journalism is probably what I should have done. Uh, and that went on years and years. And don't get me wrong, engineering served me well. It's given me a good, um, a good ground and a good standard of living. But um, I still had this sort of feeling that I'd, I'd, I'd missed my calling in life a little bit. And in 2014, I went to Brazil for for six weeks for the World Cup. Um, England were only there for two weeks, but I was there for six. <laughs> and uh, I... I Fell in love with Brazil, fell in love with Brazilian football, fell in love with the people. And um, I came home and a couple of years later, I don't know if um, you know much about it, but the Brazilian football team, Chapacuense, had a terrible plane crash where most of the team died. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's it, it horrible. It sort of appeared on, appeared on our media for literally a few days and they completely disappeared off it. But because I'd got uh, one friend in particular who we're in regular contact with in Brazil, I, I got a little bit hooked on the story and... Um, I was asking him to send me his own Brazilian media stuff, you know, and he was translating this stuff and sending me uh, YouTube news feeds with he, he was putting English subtitles on me for him, bless him. And so over a few months, I accidentally sort of became this, accidentally became a little bit of a English speaking expert on the subject, I think. And I, I was really sort of um, digging deep on it and finding out more and more, but not just about the accident and the crash, but the backstory that this team, the Chapacuense, the, the, 10 years earlier, they were effectively the Brazilian version of non-league and they'd gone on this amazing mind-boggling run of promotions and uh, scraping through every single division and um, playoffs and avoiding relegations and then scraping promotion the following year. And this real underdog story and a lot of them same players had been playing in non-league. It weren't like they were um, spending a lot of money and refreshing the roster every single season mm. there were a lot of the players what same players who've been in non-league um and stayed with them all the way through and then they'd qualified for the south american version of the europa league final like just unbelievably like the, the one of the craziest underdog stories in history of sport and on the on the way to um the away leg they have their finals and a home and away leg uh, on the away on the on the way to the away first leg um yeah, the plane crashed for truly, truly criminal reasons. Like it literally ran out of fuel because the the, the airline were cutting corners. And um, yeah, I got so hooked on that story that um, I thought, well, I'm going to pull all this together. This sort of bit of burning desire that I'd got to do some sports writing at some point in my life, and um, this story that I'd managed to end up being this sort of accidentally be this expert on. But I'll pull this together and write a book about it, not really knowing where I was going to go with it. And got halfway through and decided to send what I'd done so far into Pitch Publishing, who were the UK's biggest sports book publisher. And um, yeah, they loved it and they said they'd do it. And it did really well. It was really well received. Um, that led to me sort of writing, as I said, for these football times and appearing on podcasts for them. And then um, at that point, the, the wrestling fandom was sort of a little bit down again. I weren't really into wrestling yeah, on a on a weekly basis or anything like that at that point. But I discovered this story. I'm from, I live in Huddersfield now, and 
uh, one of Huddersfield's greatest sons is a, a gentleman called Douglas Clark. Um, he was a pioneer of rugby league. He was one of the first true rugby league superstars uh, for Great Britain and England and Huddersfield. Won everything they were to win before he were in his sort of mid twenties, and then World War One. It he went, he went off to World War One. Was a bona fide uh, war hero. Um, came back with every medal under the sun, and um, he was. I don't know if you've seen the film Axel Ridge, but he was like Britain's version of Axel Ridge. You would just kept running back into the line of fire to to That's rescue. A great people. film, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, literally, when I read, I've read his war diaries. I went to Imperial War Museum. I read Douglas, Douglas Clark's war diaries, and it literally reads like he was doing what uh, Axel Ridge were doing. He was just running back in because he'd got this level of strength and fitness from his rugby life. Um, he was just running back into uh, into no man's land and back into. Um, enemy lines to to save his friends and drag them back out and he talks about some of them that he didn't manage to save and yeah it's, it's truly truly harrowing and then after that he gets um he got given a 20 percent disability certificate and told that he could never do anything uh too strenuous again but that was uh he found himself bored so he decided he thought he was fit enough to go back to rugby signed back on with Huddersfield had a sort of second all of fame rugby career played for England <laughs> Played for England all over again, played for Great Britain Lions all over again, won everything all over again. And when he finally hung up his um, hung up his rugby boots, he went into pro wrestling. And well, in 1930, when pro wrestling had just truly hit British shores, he went into pro wrestling and was Britain's first ever world heavyweight champion. So that sort of piqued me interest again in pro wrestling, um, doing loads of research, reading loads of biographies from around that time. And um, and yeah, so I, I did I did his uh, biography at this point I start to realize wow I'm actually a published author and I've still got the bulldog story sort of swirling around in my mind from mm -hmm. all my fandom and all my interest in it going back years and years and um, I sort of still didn't feel like I was qualified as sort of the man to do it but then um, on Remembrance Day last year uh, loads of me, me Douglas Clark book had done so well that a lot of the national press ran with it as a front page story as the remembrance sort of day war hero story the run was awesome extracts yeah. out of my book and uh, that made the book kick on and do really well and it got so fantastically well received and i got loads of brilliant feedback that it sort of made me realize that yeah i, I probably am now qualified to and I, I certainly felt like i'd got the passion and the energy to to pour everything into the bulldogs book so yeah i made that decision there and then uh, to sort of really crack on with it and so sort of 13 months down the line now it's uh it's off with the 500 page manuscript is off with pitch publishing getting edited now yeah oh awesome as you have told us how you began the journey but can you just talk us through it so the, the book itself dynamite and davy the explosive lives of the british bulldogs so in terms of who have you contacted in terms of getting some insight on both their careers and their backgrounds and information so i just want to hear some of your research and the process that has gone into this book yeah well um it will it's happened so organically it's it's ended up being bigger and better like i said i didn't anticipate right in a 500 word 500 page epic uh, <laughs> at the start it was just going to be because um being from a small mining town in the north of england just like dynamite and davy were 
Mm-hmm. I want the, the the stories individually. The, the stories never really been told collectively of Dynamite and David. Both of the stories have been told in bits and parts and pieces of them individually. But um, the true relationship as cousins from a small mining town and the background that I knew the dad and heritage that I felt like I sort of shared with them. Yeah, uh, I wanted to make sure I brought it from that perspective. Um, I feel like they're possibly a bit misunderstood, especially with a lot of the controversies that happened, especially for Dynamite, you know. Yeah. I think Which can be seen on, like, uh, the Dark Side of the Ring. Yeah, with, yeah. I, I feel they kind of balanced it, but, yeah. I think they did the best to balance it, but, I mean, at the end of the day, the show is called Dark Side of the Ring, and they've only got, they, they, they end up with 44 minutes of content. You know, what What can you truly do? They've got to have... Yeah. The, the majority of it's got to be based on the dark side for it to justify its name if you like and and what does that leave that leaves you with 13 or 14 minutes to to sort of balance things out and i just didn't feel like that were enough to add the pro- proper context and i think what people don't understand is that in them days like my, my father were a minor and um he was born only a couple of months apart from tom so and I've all I've heard all my life is the stories of how hard it was, the upbringing, the never, you know, their idea of an holiday were Blackpool for a few days and stuff like that, you know. So, so Tom and then Davey a couple of years later going off to, to Canada uh, to live and work as teenagers. I don't think it's ever really been thought of from that perspective of how, how sort of frightening and narrowing that might have been for them at that time. And absolutely, uh, like they were, they were they, they, oh, you're just young men. Boys, so, um, and yeah, they made mistakes, but everybody makes mistakes in their life. So I wanted to sort of put it off from that point of view. So I'd, I'd got this idea in mind of where I want to tell the story and what angle I want to tell the story from. Um, but as I was doing more and more and more research, it just got sort of bigger and better. And I want right, I want to I want to focus on this bit. I want to focus on this bit. A lot of the Japanese stuff I really want to focus on. Um, so what I thought from what I've just said there about how as young lads and certainly Tom being the first one to make that decision to go over to Canada. I really wanted that to be like sort of a, a the first sort of arc in the story of um, sort of the sliding doors moment when he met Bruce Hart, as it were. Bruce Hart was over uh, in 1977, just doing a sort of working tour, Stampede Wrestling was struggling and about to close down and he, he was going to go and find another career, but he just thought he'd say a bit of world and use his, his profession as a wrestler to sort of say a bit of will so I came over to the UK and did a, a tour for Max Crabtree and joint promotions and um yeah he, he saw Dynamite wrestle and at that time in Stampede and most of US territories it was the land of the giants and only you sort of big heavyweights could headline but he saw mm. he saw Tom wrestle as a 170 pound um lightweight teenager uh, against Mark Rocco, absolutely tear the house down and thought, wow, this is maybe what we need to to make us a little bit unique, a little bit different uh, from the the other territories. And so, uh, yeah, he went home and sold this idea to his dad, Stu. Stu worked keen. He didn't believe that a young kid, a young skinny kid, could save the territory. So it sort of got put on back burner, but it ended up happening. They ended up, um, they had nothing left to lose and they ended up taking him over. So I wanted to speak to Bruce about that. So uh, I reached out through sort of just social media, really, met a con- couple of contacts and uh, ended up getting in touch with Bruce and arranged a call. We had a wonderful three or four hour conversation. It was absolutely brilliant um, in his perspective on everything, you know, not just Dynamite and David, but the wrestling industry in, 
as a whole. I really, really enjoyed speaking to him. And I think I must have made a, a reasonable impression in terms of what my intentions were, what my project were going to be, my passion and my energy, my knowledge and everything must have come across quite well. Uh, because a few days later, Ross Hart got in touch with me and said, look, I know I've, I've heard about your book and about yourself. Um, I'd like to contribute myself. And I were over at the moment that because I, I'd already knew from all my research that Ross was um, really kind of a, a historian on behalf of, you know, uh, Stampede Wrestling, on behalf of the Art family, on behalf of wrestling as a whole from that era. So I was really, really keen to speak to Ross. There were some parts of the story that he was so uh, integral in as well. He, you know, Davey had a, they were in, involved in a really bad uh, van crash on the way to a Stampede show. Ross were driving that day. And, uh, yeah, there were a few parts that he were really integral to. So, this a three-hour conversation with Ross, we didn't even feel like we touched sides, so we agreed to stay in regular contact by email. So we found ourselves, you know, exchanging long emails. I could have felt like I could ask him anything. I did. I just asked him anything about the subject, and he'd give me long, detailed answers. He really sort of got a passion for it and um, became involved in more of a he got more of an involvement than I ever thought he would, but it just happened organically to the point where. Um, yeah, it was it was really heavily involved, and I felt like I've got somebody to turn throughout time. But I'd, I'd already found myself some British wrestling historians, uh, Tony Earnshaw and Darren Ward and Bradley Craig, who I could turn to for different things. And um, then I, I, I was speaking to Chick Cullen, Frank Cullen, who um, still lives out in Canada. He's a Scottish wrestler who knew Dynamite and David well. Um, exchanging messages with him. So I, I just built up this little network where any 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 points of research, I felt like I got somebody to turn to. I've subsequently uh, spoken to, um, I mean, sorry, the key part missing from that is Bronwyn. I know you spoke to Bronwyn yourself, George. Yeah. Uh, because it was going so well, Bronwyn, again, I'd, I'd sent Bronwyn some messages, but I think she must have maybe heard it all before and didn't really know what angle I was going to come from. But Yeah, uh, I can understand her being a bit Yeah, skeptical. I absolutely understand. I absolutely understand yeah. all the family yeah. members being, being cautious, definitely cautious, mm -hmm. you know what. Um, but I think Ross passed on the message to her and some other family members that, um, again, a bit like Bruce had passed on to him, that it was, uh, I was coming at it from a, the right perspective and... Uh, the right context and so Bronwyn then reached out to me again and said look yeah yeah I'll, I'll be involved so that me and Bronwyn have uh, we've ended up with a really close friendship we uh, exchange messages regular and she has just been such a crucial source of information even things that she doesn't know I can go and ask her she'll go and ask her mom Michelle Michelle we, we sort of, I've spoke to Michelle as well but Michelle will pass on messages through Bromwyn and Bromwyn will go out and find out information on my behalf that I might not have access to. And she's given me loads of ex exclusive photos for the book. Uh, so that's her, awesome, and Ross, man. her and Ross being sort of so passionate about the project and having such an ever, mm. ever involvement. Uh, as I was working towards an ending, I thought, well, there's only, even as sort of, as much as I tried, I, I wanted to write this perfect ending. I realised that I probably... I couldn't write the ending as well as I know Bronwyn could tell it. So I asked Bronwyn if she would actually write um, the final piece, which she's done. She's written what I've what I've called the afterword. And, um, oh, wow. That's, that's by herself. And uh, Ross, I wanted his name up front cover as well. So I asked him to write the foreword, which he's done. He's wrote this sort of long, brilliant foreword. 
uh, saying that it's the, in his opinion, it's the sort of the most balanced and best and most detailed version of the Bulldog story that's ever been told. And um, so I, one of the reasons I did that as well is I knowing that they'd write these brilliant pieces for me that had fit perfect as bookends at the beginning and the end. Um, I wanted their names on front as well, you know, so it now, you know, I'm I've, obviously my name's emblazoned on it as the author, but it says forward by Ross Art, afterward by Bromwyn Billiton, and I feel that gives it, um, it, it gives them the true level of involvement that, the, that they deserve. And then, yeah, I've spoken to Diana, um, Gary Port, Scott McGee, who are also on Dark Side of the Ring. He's told me a couple of brilliant anecdotes mm. that weren't on Dark Side of the Ring, which... Uh, is, is really great. Keith Hart has given me a, a true exclusive that's one of my favourite parts of the book uh, about when Tom and Ali Race became friends. They were there at the time. It's a brilliant story um, that sort of changes Tom's perspective at that time, I think. And so that's an important uh, important part mm -hmm. as well as being so, um, so such an entertaining little story. Uh, and yeah, Brett, I, I got in touch with Brett through Bromwyn uh, indirectly. Uh, she uh, I, I, did a part uh, of you, by the way, like mark out a little bit. Like, well, I did. <laughs> I, never, I actually still spoke to him directly. What I did was, um, he asked he asked me through Bronwyn to write him a letter um, detailing what quotes of his I wanted to use because I said, look, you know, as much as I'd love to speak to him, he's, uh, he's talked about it quite a lot in the past, and obviously releasing his 600 word book he talks about everything so often I don't know why Alexa's just started talking it's just... <laughs> <laughs> shout out to Alexa it's only me and Alice but Alexa's just started talking uh, I'll just keep it saying it's uh, fine yeah um, I felt like I'd got all the quotes that I needed as much as I'd like to have hear him, as exclu hear him say them to me as exclusives for the book I yeah. did feel like I'd kind of got everything that I needed off him through all his podcast appearances in his book and uh, things that he's done for Dave Meltzer's newsletter. Um, so, but what I wanted from him was sort of a sign off that I could use all these quotes because there's only so many that you can use without formal permission and I'd far bust that in terms of Brett. So um, I sent all the direct quotes and uh, included sort of a, a one pager about myself, about the book, what I wanted it to do, what I wanted it to achieve, what its objectives were and um, yeah, he, he then asked me if I could send him the same thing back again, but with a, a definite line for him to sign and date on. And then he sent it back to me, signed uh, and dated, and sort of wished me good luck through Bromwyn with it all. It, it sounded like a good a good project. So, yeah, I That's did. That's so cool, man, by the I way. Did, I did mark out a little bit, yeah. So <laughs> I, put my, I put my man shirt on and uh, had a little moment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, so yeah, it kind of awesome from where, from where it originally started. I felt like it had really grown legs and ended up being bigger and better than what I ever dreamt it would be in terms of the people that I got involved and people that I spoke to and the things that I found out. You know, I knew that there were a book in there just based on the things that I already knew, but I found out so much more and so much more mm. vital stuff, so much more very entertaining stuff, so much more positive stuff that doesn't get talked about as often. Um, and yeah, it's ended up being. A, a full body of work that I'm really proud of. Just hearing this journey, man, has got me excited and made me look forward to one. I'm excited to read the book, basically. Just hearing is involved, hearing your passion, the excitement, like how much detail and how much, you know, how you've been exchanging the emails and 
the contacts that you've kind of gained through this journey, it's, it sounds like it's going to be a great book. I mean, I have to give a shout out also to Bronwyn, who I've had on the show before. And she is a fantastic person. I really enjoy speaking to her. Uh, it was great to hear about, you know, her dad's career and just to hear about her as a person and to hear that she's assisted you so much um, in this book, you know, just makes me happy. Um, but that that's, that's fucking awesome. So what's the actual release date for the book? Uh, the release date is 4th of April uh, here in the UK and then it's a couple of months later for the US, but I've set up a... I've set up a website, I've set up an eBay page, and I've set up a Twitter account, um, all for the book. So anybody from anywhere in the world can get in touch with me directly or order on the website or through eBay. Mm -hmm. And I will make sure that they get a book uh, wherever they are in the world in, in, in by the end of April. So uh, regardless of what the sort of Amazon or official release date might be in that part of the world, um, if they order from me direct, I will personally make sure that they get that. Um, delivered to him by the end of April so uh, I just wanted I wanted that really I didn't want there to be this sort of discrepancy I know that I've, I've had so much feedback from the US and Canada as you can understand uh, I didn't want them to sort of have to wait longer than everybody else so I'd, I've sort of set all these extra um, mechanisms up for him to be able to order it order it yeah because I did see Bonwin uh, put that on a Twitter saying you know if you are outside the UK um, just sort of get in contact with me and then obviously yeah, I can get yeah, yeah. Again, that would just because she's been so uh, amazing throughout it all, and she's got this sort of um, wonderful energy about her, and mm. I really wanted her involved as well. And um, so I offered her the chance to almost be a little sort of have a little sales business, if you like, out in Calgary. I know there'd be so much business out there for it in Calgary that um, I wanted her to be able to have a uh, be able to offer it out there. I know that. A lot of people had turned to her asking where they could get it from. So yeah. I wanted to have them sort of readily available on hand. So uh, she's going to get a, a delivery of uh, dozens and dozens of books direct from the publisher that she can then uh, arrange sale of around Calgary and Canada. No, awesome, man. I, I, it's quite funny you mentioned about Bronwyn um, sort of being a bit sceptical at first. She was kind of like that amazed with the podcast because she probably gets asked all the time. And it just happened to be after the... Um, Dark Side of the Ring, but because I'd actually told her that I'd actually spoke to Georgia Smith before, and then she was like, oh, right, no, that's, that's fine then, that's fine, and then, you know, talking about the podcast, ended up being a really good episode, so I thought I'd just share that sort of insight yeah, she's, as well. she's great, um, <laughs> she's really, she's so, she's so chatty, and she's got this sort of bubbly energy about her, she's, mm. she's med fan, I hope she does a little bit of um, indie wrestling as sort of a manager, and she's absolutely made for that kind of that kind of thing i think she's got this presence about her and, and an energy that uh yeah she's become quite popular i think on the wrestling podcast circuit because and you can see why she's she's so sort of giving with the time and giving with the knowledge and mm. uh, and she's pretty open as well like she knows what's said about her dad and stuff but she also likes to hear the positive like from mick foley you know when when you ask him about dynamite kid he will literally say despite <laughs> that match i think it's it's on youtube or network where yeah. mick foley <laughs> has uh i think it's first or second match in wwf in 86 87 and he just gets knocked the fuck out basically by dynamite but he take he takes it with such honor such pride like oh, yeah i messed with dynamite it didn't end well but yeah that's great and your dad's it, awesome like it, I've, I've spoke to mick as well via messaging as well uh, he's Give me a couple of little pointers in terms of. Uh, oh, really? That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, again, he's sort of great with his time and that, and he 
as I say, Dynamite, what he got, it turned into good friends with Davey in the mid to late 90s. Uh, yeah. He had so much sort of love and respect for Davey from that era. Uh, and as a worker, and he, he absolutely adores Tom, as I said, Tom's on his Mount Rushmore. And then after that sort of infamous event, when he, Tom felt that Mick was um, a little bit cocky for somebody on his, for in his second uh, wrestling match when he suggested a couple of spots that they might do in what were, <laughs> what were effectively a job of match. Yeah. Um, Tom, yeah, didn't take any prisoners. Put him in his place, basically. Rocking his, <laughs> rock his jaw with a clothesline. That clothes. was it. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, despite that, Mick almost wears that as a bit of a badge of honour. Um, yeah. Knows that it learned him a lot about his attitude towards um, other veterans at the time. Uh, so almost thanks him for it in a way. And then years later when Mick's career were taking off and Dynamite were um, on the way down, as it, it weren't, it's not like he had this chip on his shoulder like you might have expected Tom at all. He, he was very humble, very respectful and give Mick some great points. They had some good matches. Good, they were involved in good tag matches against each other in Japan uh, in the early 90s. And um, it, they, became, they became sort of friends after yeah. all that, which is something that not a lot of people are aware of. And uh, Mick has got this utmost respect for him to the point where when Tom had really, on our times, Mick was the one who was um, trying to rally the troops into having sort of a charity event on his behalf and things like that, which never really happened. But uh, yeah, Mick being Mick was wanting to do all that. So yeah, I got in touch with him because there were a couple of stories that, I'd heard of that I didn't know enough detail what uh, on and one of them being that when Davey had really it's on our times and we were in the hospital with a bad staph infection um, Mick went to see him and um, that were effectively the day when Davey re-signed for the WWF in 1999 uh, and it was Mick and Owen that sort of perked him up from this slump that he were in both physically and mentally and um Got him, managed to get him re-signed with Vince, which was unthinkable after what had happened with in Montreal, like some yeah. eighteen months earlier. Um, so I wanted to know a bit more about that, and he pointed in the right direction. I didn't know I've, I've read most of what Mick's done, but the one that I'd sort of missed out on, or one of the couple of books of his that I'd missed out on, were uh, the Hardcore Diaries. And he said, "It's a lot. Feel free to use as much of me work as you want, but just so you know, the the story that you're asking me about is heavily featured in Hardcore Diaries. So downloaded that book." And sure enough, <laughs> I quickly had some brilliant quotes to, to use. Uh, so, yeah, Mick, Mick were great as well. That's awesome, man. Foley is God. Like, Foley's probably top 10 for me of all time, along with most of the Heart Foundation. Um, but that was, this has been a, a good episode. I think you can tell that I'm massive. Not just Dynamite, not just Bulldog, but the Heart family in general. Like, I love the family. Uh, fun fact, I have an Owen Hart tattoo. Really? Yep. Uh, not not like a portrait of him, but just his boot. Area uh, Square. It's on my arm, so it's the it's basically his boot, uh, not the King of Hearts logo, but a rocket. So WrestleMania ten because Brett versus Owen, probably my favorite match of all time. Yeah, understandably. And is is a fun fact for you then? A little exclusive. That match, uh, David Boy was watching that match uh, in his mum and dad's home in Goldborn. Um, it was 
uh, tour in the UK at the time after he'd been fired by not only WF in 90, at the end of 92, but also WCW at the end of 93. That match happened in at WrestleMania 10 in 1994. And that was the day he turned to Diana and said, I need to get back. I, I can't I can't watch them tear the house down like that while I'm um, in uh, wrestling round sort of bingo walls in the UK. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm going back. And so then by uh, SummerSlam, he made his return. I love that, man. I, didn't, I did not know that at all. Didn't have a clue. It's really annoying, right? Because we've been like having a really good chat for about an hour. And a part of me just still wants to ask more questions about the book. But at the same time, I think I'm just going to have to have patience. Like, I feel <laughs> like a kid around Christmas at the moment because I'm fascinated by the Hart family. I've read, but like, I think I've we had a conversation earlier about Bret Hart's book being the best wrestler book of all time. I mean, if you, if you agree with that, that's great. If you're listening to this, if not, put in the comments below what is your favourite book or mention some of your other favourite books because I think Brett's mostly gets featured as at least top three. Best yeah, I think, Brett, I think Brett and Mix, and it's, it's difficult to argue with either of them. I think Brett, Brett and Mix are my favourites. So, and what one of the things that I love about Mix also is that it is actually a WWF production. He, I don't know if you've heard him talk about it, but um, he submitted it to the publisher and they basically wanted to tear it in half. They wanted to get rid of half of it. Um, mostly just because they felt it were too long to be a wrestling book, as we've discussed, most of them are two or 300 pages. Yeah. It's, it's epic, a bit like Brett's is. They wanted to get rid of most of it, but I dare say, and I'm only speculating here, but I dare say, given the fact it was going through the WWF production machine, I dare say a lot of the stuff that they'd got rid of would have been the more controversial stuff and they'd have maybe put a bit of a polish on it. And he said, no, he said, no, no, that's it. He'd written it while they were on the road. Um, and he said, no, no, that's it. He said, I'll let you sort of edit it, but I'm not letting you uh, rip it limb from limb. Um, and so that's why it's it stayed as intact and as long and, and detailed. Because it's so, it, like, the truth is just there. I, there are a few books, like The Hardy Boys and Goldust, where you can just tell they have just stripped it so much and, you know, it filtered yeah, it. Stone Cold as well, you know, I'm really looking forward to that. And I do think it's it, it's still good. It's still interesting uh, mm. to read, but it, it just leaves you with, almost leaves you with as many questions as it does answers. By the Absolutely. Bits, the bits There's a few books, I think, about. underrated ones, like Harker Holly's book. I thought that was, I was surprised how good it was. Because that was obviously a non-WE book, but I was like, obviously he hates Jeff Jarrett, it's really funny. But I was just like, huh, I actually really like Harker Holly. <laughs> well, I don't know if you've listened to any of it, but um, Conrad, Thompson generally puts quotes from Bob Ollie's book to, to Jeff Jarrett on the podcast. I haven't it, listened to that one yet. <laughs> obviously, you don't come, off, come out of it looking very well. Uh, but yeah, again, I, th I don't think the better ones in general are the ones that aren't WWF affiliated because um, they've just sort of, the ones that are, have got a little bit of an agenda, if you like. They're not, they're not completely free to write what they want, mm. I don't think. Um, I remember Batista, uh, in his book, he had to fight to basically feature and include a Benoit story. Like, he had to fight for that. I mean, I could, that's one time I do understand why they didn't want to have him in it. Yeah, I mean, well, we're, on, we're going on a bit of a segue, but what baffles me is um, on network, and I was like, the, the, the general assumption or general knowledge is that they've sort of wiped Benoit out of everything. Um, 
but they haven't actually haven't every match of his is still on there on the network. All they mm. do is you just can't search him. His name is like yeah, no it, results. It, it just says it just says it'll just say like the British Bulldog versus uh, our wrestler or something like that. Yeah. But then when you actually put it on it, you know the the commentators are calling him by his name. So uh, I find it I find it very sort of odd how they've managed to claim to the world that wiped him out of everything. But Ian, it's still there. And I, in terms of pure wrestling, I, I, I do think he should still be there, but um, it, it just feels a little bit mm. uh, like they're trying to get the best of both worlds, if you like. They, they, want, they want to claim that they've... Uh, there was so they, much that he, he they, did. Like it, It's a very touchy subject. Like Not everyone likes to hear it. I'm with you. I can watch a Benoit match and I'll just watch it for the match. But as a person, you know, I absolutely despise what he did. I think he's a special human being and he shouldn't have been in the Hall of Fame because there are people still out there who say he should be in the Hall of Fame. But I think, well, that I think just... that's just... A, I, I just think that's a ridiculous comment. Um, st- oh, it's on Twitter. You still see it, mate. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh no, no, I don't No, I don't, I don't mean yours. Is the, I mean, I mean, people who say that is the... <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I just think... Can you imagine the, uh, the reaction or how much that would overshadow anything else that were going on at that time you know what i mean it well i do feel bad though for nancy benoit or nancy, nancy sullivan i call her the woman um it's the fact that her career in a way has been washed away and erased yeah. she's been you're forgotten about right and she, i feel yeah you know. you're absolutely right she was so pioneering for for women's wrestling in that mm-hmm. uh, in that in the moment. 90s definitely yeah um, that you feel like if she wasn't so ingrained with with what happened, that she would probably be in the Hall of Fame herself, or, uh, or it's a real shame, real shame. Uh, it is the obviously all thing about it's a shame. It's such a yeah, shame. but I mean, and like her, like, her career, her achievements, all done because of what he did. But I feel like have you have you ever heard her sister? I can't remember her name. Talk about her, like Nancy and the career and what happened, and like she's I've, really I've, interesting to listen to. Is it the same sister that was ever featured on the Dark Side episode? Yes, I yeah, I cannot uh, remember yeah, her name. Yeah. Forgot now. She is, yeah, I can't think of her name as we mentioned now, but um, yes, yeah, she, she is. She obviously, you can tell that she's still obviously torn apart by it all, and she comes yeah. across really well and really well. Listen to one talk with Jericho, not just like such a brave woman. Yeah, but it needs that as we've as we've just said. Like Nancy, Nancy's side of it sort of gets washed over a little bit because. Yeah because of everything that's happened. So it does need somebody, people like Chris Jericho to um, sort of feature that quite heavily. Um, but I mean, he, it, he does a really good job, Jericho, when it comes to that sort of stuff. Really good job. He's like, he's got such a big reach and such a big following that mm. um, I think he's not, he's not afraid of the controversy because I think nah. AEW as opposed to the WWF give them that freedom to go and do their own thing and cover... Mm. Cover the more controversial stuff, be be themselves and do what they want, uh, even as far as going and wrestling for the promotions. You know what I mean? I think that's mm. what people are really warming to them for. They don't feel like they're just sort of ring fencing the talent and uh, sort of oppressing them, if you like. Uh, and he does a brilliant job uh, with all that and uses his his influence and his reach in the right way, I think. Yeah, you're not, you're not wrong. I, mean, I just wish he would stop mentioning Fozzie in his books because his books are brilliant. Then you get like, ah, oh, Fozzie talk. Skip, skip, skip. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, so I had to squeeze it in. You know, as, as, much as, he loves, as much as he loves wrestling and as much of a fantastic wrestler as he is, he does still only want to be a rock star. <laughs> I know. He's on tour in the UK at the moment. I was just like, my mate, do you want to go? Nah, you're right. <laughs> if it was wrestling or something, like AEW, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, fuck it, let's do it. Should we go see Fozzy? Nah, I'm busy. Doing what? He does the cruises, don't he? The, the, the Fozzy cruises. Oh, mate, I couldn't do that. I just could not do it. Like, I love, I'm a wrestling fan, you're a wrestling fan. But for three days, listen to Fozzy. I can't do it. Being surrounded by, like, AEW fans, not for me. <laughs> you can tell that that's, that's, yeah, that's what he wants to be deep down. But, yeah, he's, <laughs> you, can't, you can't blame he's him. He's never going to give up with the rock stars. Part-time wrestler, part-time rock star. Fair play to him. Fair, oh, absolutely, man. Jericho's one of my favorites of all time into, as a wrestler. Mate, top top five, maybe top ten. Like, yeah, in, terms of in terms of longevity and achievements, yeah, undoubtedly, I think you'd have to say top ten. Yeah, um, but in terms of his, like, rock career, like, we'll just end, we'll just end that conversation. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, going back to people who aren't in Hall of Fame, obviously, it's an issue in the book with Dynamite not being in there. And, and also, yeah, with you, with your tattoo, um, uh, I really don't like the fact that Owen are in, in there. I mean, it can't, I think it kind of makes a mockery of the Hall of Fame. I think, um, and I know the issue was why, and I know that Martha's got a sort of moral stance in terms of yeah. uh, why why he shouldn't be in there and why they shouldn't be able to almost profit. By See, the- my tune's changed on that. I used to be like my, the biggest advocate of how Owen being the Hall of Fame. Oh, why is he not in the video games? Or has his own merch and, you know, getting his career celebrated by wrestling fans who still miss him. And then I did like my research and listened to more of what had Martha had to say, read up on her and what actually happened. And then Darkseid came out. Then I was just like, do you know what? I stand by that woman. I stand by her and her family. Why she doesn't want him anywhere near it. And she says like, she forgives them. That, I think that's all they need to know. And I respect that because when, you know, when you properly, go, we won't have a full blown conversation about it because it's actually quite really, it's really, really sad. Um, if anyone's not it does get proper deep I mean if anyone wants to go out there it's out there so we have to go literally Google Mother Heart Hall of Fame Owen Hart etc etc but I like what AEW's um, got in plan with Owen Hart the Owen Hart tournament you know we're going to get action figures I don't care about action figures but for Owen Hart I will happily buy one <laughs> happily and display that bad boy yeah I think I do think that as a as an alternative I just think that he he deserves to be, and I don't want to use the word remembered because everybody does remember it, everybody remembers him so fondly, but uh, he just, he deserves to be current, I think, and uh, in, in the way that most mm. most of them have something, be it an, an Hall of Fame ceremony. Or I don't something. want just the full, like, yeah, the night, it, night, night probably, nine. probably going to get that through through AEW and um yeah, I, I just hope they involve the right people. Mm. And they'll, they'll be able to use like footage of him and uh, Japan and stuff and news pictures obviously they won't be able to use WWE footage but they can work around it and they can celebrate his life which it's been too damn long too damn long yeah I, I think so you know some nights some brilliantly produced and professional montages and stuff like that the, the mm. things that you get when when somebody's for example being inducted into the Hall of Fame we want we need something new like that I think for Owen so hopefully we're going to get it Oh man, I can't wait. So I'm just going to ask a few more questions and then I'll let you enjoy your evening. Uh, I'd have to say after in the morning because we're in the same time zone. Happy days. Makes things a bit easier. Um, so we've, we've we've discussed in detail about the book, but I just want to ask a few more questions about you being an author as well. Uh, just some, want to get some insight because I think the listeners will want to hear that. How would you overcome writer's block? Oh, it's, it's something that I haven't come across yet, but I've only not come across it, I think, because I've immersed myself in 
projects that I'm so passionate about. And I think mm -hmm. that's what it's all about. Um, I think if somebody is a professional writer, especially of something like novels, maybe, I can absolutely see why there's so much pressure on having your next idea or putting your next thing, putting next pen to paper when you're, you know, your livelihood depends on it. Whereas what I've done is immerse myself as sort of a part-time, almost an hobby that's turning into a career now, uh, immerse myself in projects that I'm so passionate about. All I can think about uh, while I'm doing pretty much anything else is, right, the next thing that I'm going to move on to is this chapter, this section. The next thing I'm going to research is uh, about this bit. I can't wait to get on to research about that bit. Mm -hmm. it's, I have found it so far, I'll be brutally honest, I have found it impossible to have writer's block about the subjects that I've, that I've fallen into. But I think that's just because um, it's not, it, there's no pressure on me to um, to produce something out of nothing. Uh, everything is everything is already out there somewhere, and I know it is. All I need to do is find find it, be be it on the internet, be it in other people's books, be it by finding somebody who does know about it because they're there. Uh, so yeah, I've always found myself with somebody to turn to, or a book to turn to, or the internet to turn to, uh, which has given me my sort of next. Uh, my next chapter, my next little story, my next piece that I want to write about. Awesome, my man. Well, we asked, I actually asked about your favourite British Bulldog match, but I actually forgot to ask your favourite Dynamite Kid match. Favourite Dynamite Kid match? Um, yeah, well, I think the obvious answers are obviously is one ones with Tiger Mask, mm -hmm. um, which are just so groundbreaking, so brilliant. Um, but my favourite one is actually uh, is one of his first matches against a Japanese headliner, but it took place in Calgary, it took place in Stampede. Uh, it's against Tatsumi Fujinami uh, for the, as it were at the time, of the WWF uh, Junior Heavyweight title. Uh, they, they've gone on a tour, he's having a bit of work issue visas, we actually get into Japan at that time, and he's got multiple promotions even smaller promotions sort of fighting for him uh, so he's unclear about who he's going to go to so uh, there's a bit of complications with all that but then New Japan do a tour of US and Canada the US and Canada Canadian territories so when they come through uh, Stampede they want Fujinami to put his WF junior heavyweight title on the line against Dynamite um, and they absolutely tear the house down. Uh, it's absolutely phenomenal. And that is the match that made the Japanese audience and the Japanese bookers, particularly the New Japan bookers, say, right, get him on the next plane over here. And then ultimately he turns into the man that they uh, put in with Tiger Mask to get, to get Tiger Mask over to the absolute maximum that he can. And then when Tiger Mask goes into semi-retirement and vacates the belt, um, Dynamite is the man and that would lead to if it weren't such a short match when he actually wins the WWF Junior Heavyweight title finally five years after first challenging for it uh, he does it in a tournament where he beats David Boy in the semi-final uh, and injures his back so badly and that is where his real real back problem started when he injured his back that night when he finally and he, he, but he wrestles through the pain barrier no man alive should have been able to even walk let alone carry on wrestling another match when he beat the cobra in the final 
Um, and it's like a brilliant five-year story from the first time he challenged for that title to actually winning it five years later and going through all that agony. Um, I detail it quite heavily in the book, yeah. But it's just, I think that first match blows everybody away so much to culminate five years later on this sort of famous night in Tokyo. Yeah, it's brilliant. Ah, oh, wicked, man. I think mine's probably the matches against Tiger Mask or there's a match he had with Macho Man. It's in the King of the Ring tournament. Yeah, yeah. I, it, no, it's in, uh, yeah, it's on the Wrestling Classic in... Um, was, yeah, in, uh, it was like 86, Chicago, isn't it? Yeah, they, they, have, they just have like a one-off tournament as a pay-per-view. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a long match, but it's no, so good. Because you've got to cram all these matches in, obviously, in the tournament mm. format, they've got to cram all these matches in uh, into the one night. So they are, they're all pretty short matches. Uh, but it's as if they've made this decision, him and Randy at the time, being two of the top workers in the world. Right, it, we've only been given five minutes, but let's make it absolutely the best five minutes you can imagine. And yeah, they, it, it does, it steals the show. Ah, oh, superb, man. That's awesome. Last question, and I'll let you go, Stephen. What can the readers expect from reading this upcoming book? So we've talked about the content, we've talked about who you've reached out to, we've talked about what's involved, and what inspired you to write it. But as a reader, what can they expect? Uh, I think uh, real exclusives that nobody knows or has heard or seen before uh, mm -hmm. is one of the things that I'm most proud of. Uh, I've had a couple of people, Twitter being Twitter, um, challenge me and say, well, you know, it's all been done before. What What are you bringing to the table? What, really? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, as you oh, can imagine. Fuck them. Uh, absolutely. No doubt in my mind, I, there is going to be an awful lot in this book that nobody's ever read before. And I do, I am quite proud of my style. I do it in quite a dramatic and descriptive way where mm -hmm. I sort of create scenes. So how many books have you published, by the way? Is it three? This is my third, yeah. Third one, so, okay. So, yeah, um, it's not just going to be a, and then this happened, and then that happened, and then this happened, and then that happened. You'll find... Um, an awful lot of detail, uh, an awful lot of drama, and matches gone into real, real detail that you probably didn't even know existed. Matches that they had against people that you didn't know they'd ever been in the ring with, uh, gone in into, into real detail. Uh, I honestly believe that not one person will be disappointed when they finish this book. I can't wait, mate. I honestly can't. And I'm not just saying that because I'm speaking to you right now. And I've had Bronwyn as a guest before and George Smith and the fact that I absolutely adore that entire family. But I can just tell it's going to be a good book. Where can the listeners find you on social media, Stephen? Uh, on social media, I am Stephen underscore Bell 1985 uh, on Twitter. Um, but I've also got a dedicated Twitter page for the book, which is at Bulldogs Book 123. Uh, I've got a website set up which you can get all my books so far and place a pre-order for Dynamite and David. That's stephenbellwrites.com. Uh, and yeah, there's even, for those who don't like social media or anything like that, there's even an eBay page set up so you can place your pre-orders there too, which, you know, a quick search and you'll find it pretty quickly, I'd have thought. Awesome. Stephen, thank you for coming on. Like It's been a really good conversation. I thought like we could have had a bit longer, but I didn't want to... Apart, we was just going to literally try and pick your brain about the book because I just want to know more now. <laughs> and I don't think that's fair for the consumers and myself. I think I'm just going to have to wait, basically, because uh, I like to feel like I know everything, but uh, I, I'm yeah, just no, sure. I, 
I, I, love, I love talking about it, George. It's been a brilliant conversation uh, over an hour. It's just, <laughs> just flown by. So thanks yeah. for that. Nah, no problem at all. For everyone that's listened to this episode, there's going to be more episodes of What You Call It podcast coming out soon. But for now, everyone, have a brilliant week. And also, I hope Arsenal get three points against Man United. Take care. <laughs>